Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Well, good morning. My name is James. For those of you who don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here at Reach Life Church, and I'm so blessed that you have come to worship with us this morning. And this morning we are going to be continuing in our teaching series that we started a few weeks ago that we've entitled The Big Picture. And this is where we want to preach sweeping overview messages of all 66 books of the Bible uh, over the next year or so. And we want to do this so that we can see how uh, these 66 books come together to show us one unified message of redemption that points to the person and the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And today we have come to the book of Numbers, which is the fourth book of the Pentateuch, which is the five books of the Hebrew Bible. And, you know, being a pastor uh, has its privileges. Um, I get to know we get to know the flock, we, we get to know our people, and we get to know the backstories of those who are in at Reach Life Church. And one thing that I'm aware of about our church is that many of us this morning are in a place of weariness. Can I get an amen? amen. We are in a place of weariness this morning. Listen, I want you to know that this morning we have weary parents we have weary marriages. We have weary homeowners. There are some of us who are weary because of current family dynamics that are changing over time, and some of us are weary because of our job situations. Some of us are weary because of ongoing health situations, and still others of us are wearied because of the unknown not knowing what that next step is that we're supposed to take. And as we're uh, going through life, almost everyone I know in this room, many of us in this room, myself included, I'm included in this list, my family is included in this list, are going through something that is taxing and draining. And during these seasons, if you're like me, and I know you are, we're all the same in, in, in one way or another. If you're like me, you're tempted to ask three questions when you're going through trials. Number one is, where is God? Number two, does God care? And number three, is it really worth it? Is it worth continuing to follow God? Is it worth being amongst God's people? Because sometimes those trials come from within the body. And so I believe that today's overview message in Numbers is a timely message because Numbers is one of the most relevant and applicable books in the Bible for weary and discouraged disciples to go to, to study. It's one of my favorites, and it's about a 40-year wandering of the, children of, the Israel, uh, of the children of Israel in the wilderness. And if you studied this book, you know that they are weary, you know that they are discouraged. And all throughout the narrative, we're going to see that they're asking the question, those three questions, where is God, does he care, and is it even worth following him? Is it worth going forward? You know, 1 Corinthians 10 speaks of, of the book of Numbers, 
when it says this. Now, these things happened, speaking of the Israelites in the wilderness, these things happened to them as an example. Now look at this. But they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the age has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, what? Lest he fall. These things were written for our benefit, to take heed, that we would not do the same things that they did. And so Numbers is a book that we need to study. It's a book that we need to pay attention to in order to avoid the same mistakes of unbelief that the Israelites in the, in the wilderness made. And my prayer for our church over this past week has been that our time together this morning as we're going through the book of, of Numbers would be encouraging, that it would be refreshing, that it would give us instruction for how we should live before the Lord and so that, that we will not uh, make the same mistakes as they made while they were going through the wilderness. And just to, to give a little bit of um, background on the book, this book answers an overarching question, and that is, will they get there? That's what this book is, is, is answering. Will God keep his covenant promise that he made back in Genesis 12 with Abraham. If you guys remember, he made a promise back then. Now listen, he's already fulfilled one, one part of the promise. He's already made the descendants of Abraham into a great nation. He did that in Egypt. They have come out now. He's already fulfilled the first part of his promise. But the question is, will he bring them into the land of, uh, that's flowing with milk and honey? And will they be able to be a blessing after they get into the land to the rest of the nations? And so this book is, is broken down into three sections. I want you to look at, we're going to be looking at Mount Sinai, that's chapters 1 through 10, the wilderness of Paran, that's chapters 11 through 21, the plains of Moab, which is chapters 22 through 36. So let's start with Mount Sinai, chapters 1 through 10. If you're taking notes, you can write under that. This is the season of preparation. Chapters 1 through 10 are a season of preparation. Preparation. God has delivered his people from Egypt. They are camped at the foot of, of Mount Sinai. There he has given them uh, his law. He's given them the tabernacle. And so the next year, this is going to take a year, God is preparing them to journey out into the wilderness, into the promised land. And you know, when God, have you ever noticed that when God, uh, after he calls you to himself, there's usually a time of preparation in your life for the next steps that lie ahead. Now, sometimes some of us may have already been in the wilderness. We've already gotten past the time of preparation. We are in it. But some of us this morning, you might be in a place of preparation. And when you're there, it can feel like you're just wasting time. You're like, I'm not doing anything for God. Uh, there's nothing great, miraculous things happening. There's no parting of Red Seas that you're asking the question, is God here? Where is God? Um, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but by looking at your faces, some of you are really tracking with me right now. And you're, you're, you feel like this is a wasted time. This is, but let me just encourage you that during the time of preparation, God is not, has not forgotten about you and you're not wasting time. There's no such thing as wasted time in God's economy if we are being faithful to what he's called us to be doing during that time. He's preparing us for service. And so in chapter 1, we're going to see that God commands Moses to take a census of the people. 
They've come out of, of Egypt. He says, I want you to, to number the people. That's where we get the name of this book, Numbers. And he, he numbers all the men, 20 years and older, who are able to go to war. And because God is a God of order, he also instructs his people on how they should arrange themselves when they're setting up camp. Now, last week, I'll sh- there's a picture here. We looked at uh, the tabernacle. This is what they would have been building during this year while they're waiting to go out into the wilderness. Uh, so the tabernacle was to be at the center of the camp. This demonstrated that God's presence is to be at the heart of the community. After that, uh, you can go to the next slide. Next, Moses's, Moses, Aaron, and the tribes of Levi uh, were to camp on the four, corner, four sides of the tabernacle. They're, they are the smaller uh, rectangles in this picture here. The tabernacle is there in the middle. And after that, God arranged the people of Israel according to their tribes to camp around the tabernacle. Now, just looking at that picture, some people uh, have pointed out that from an aerial view, the camp of Israel looked like a cross. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know if that's what God's intent is, but you can look at that and you, and you can see that. I don't know if this is what God was, was trying to communicate through this, but we do know that God was giving special instru- specific instructions for how they were to be arranged, how they were to be organized when they were setting themselves up in the camp. And in chapter 9, we read that God's presence It was seen over the tabernacle in the form of a cloud by day, and by night it was the form of fire. Let's look at Numbers 9, verse 18. This is what, it gives a description of what the cloud did. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out. This is chapter 9, verse 18. And at the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Verse 22 says, whether it was two days or a month or, or a longer time, that cloud, the cloud continued over the tabernacle, abiding there. The people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. They set out. The point is, the Israelites never had to question if God was with them or if they, when they needed to move or where they needed to go. God's presence, God's saying in this time of preparation, he's like, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to lead you with a visible cloud. And for a year, God has them, like I said earlier, construct the tabernacle, learn how to set up and tear it down and how it would to be, was to be carried through the wilderness. And he reminds them in the first 10 chapters to be holy. He's a holy God. Uh, before sending them out. And before he sends them out, he instructs Aaron to pray a specific blessing over the people. This is a blessing I think most of us have heard before. It's found in Numbers 6.24. I'm going to read it to you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name Upon the people of Israel. And look at this, it says, and I will bless them. This is the blessing that echoes the covenant God made with Abraham back in Genesis 12. God is reminding his people, the children of Israel, he's, 
because this is so hard for us to get. This is, what he's reminding them is something that's so hard for us as his people to get. You are my prized and privileged people whom I love, whom I have called out from among the nations to be holy and to be blessed. And he says, I have put my name upon you. And I don't want us to miss that this blessing that was prayed upon them is the same blessing that is upon us who have come to Jesus. We are the chosen people of God through Jesus, called out from among the nations and set apart to know and to represent him. And just as the tabernacle was meant to be the center of worship for the Jews, Jesus, who dwelt among us or who tabernacled among us, is to be at the center of of our lives and of our worship. And just as the cloud led the people through the wilderness, in the same way, actually in a greater way, God has given us the Holy Spirit to be within us and to lead us if, and this is a big if, if we are willing to pay attention and to be obedient to his voice. So after a a time of preparation, we get to chapter 10, verse 11, and it says, In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony, and the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai. Now, just picture a, um, the, the Ark of the Covenant being carried by priests. It's going to be always going to be in the front, leading the way, with the processional of the people behind, falling in line, behind according to the tribes, the way that God specified for them to travel. And this brings us to our second section of Numbers, the wilderness of Paran, chapters 11 through 21. Under this, you might want to write, this is a season of testing. A a season of testing. After, you know, a season of preparation, God leads leads us out into the wilderness for a season of testing. And these These tests come with trials and difficulties. Uh, These tests can also be seen, they should be seen as opportunities to us. They should be seen as opportunities for us to exercise our faith in God and to grow in maturity. A well-known passage that we quote here quite often is James 1-2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face what? Trials of many kinds. Why? Why should we consider it pure joy? Because they have a purpose. Verse 3 says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Trials plus faith lead to maturity. And And the thing about all this is that we have a choice, don't we? We have a choice. When we come to a trial, we have a choice to either believe God by faith and grow to maturity, or we can choose unbelief, to trust something else, to trust our circumstances, to trust our feelings. And in doing so, we will, in in one sense, perish in the wilderness during that trial. So, the Israelites have set out. 
They're, they're out in the wilderness for three days. And let's see how they're doing in chapter 11, verse 1. And the people complained. And the people complained. They've only been on the journey for three days, and they're already complaining. They complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. Now, life in the desert is difficult. Um, If you've ever been backpacking and gone out, you know that for me, after day three or four, I am wanting that shower. I'm wanting to be back. I'm tired of eating Mountain House. It was good the first three nights. But when I get back, after day four, I want to get back home. They've been in the desert for at least a year, and there's no sight of it ending anytime soon. So I kind of get where they're at. They're tired, they are weary, and they've come to that crossroad, faith or unbelief, and they choose unbelief, and they begin complaining. It says, and when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. There's two things I want us to see here, and that is, number one, that complaining is a fruit of unbelief. Complaining is a fruit of unbelief. If you are complaining, just know that it's coming from unbelief. You're not trusting God in whatever that situation you are in. And listen, we are not a church that tries to to be happy all the time, to put a happy face on everything. Uh, When times are difficult, we want to walk in reality. When something's difficult, we want to say, man, that is difficult. When you're mourning, we're called to mourn with you, not to say, smile, God loves you. That usually doesn't get me out of my place of uh, difficulty. This passage acknowledges that The Israelites are going through a difficult situation. But it's also showing us that because they are complaining, they have um, unbelieving, discontent hearts. Their hope, their faith is not in God. It's in their situation. And instead of of seeing our misfortunes as opportunities from God to grow uh, in maturity and becoming more like Jesus... Sometimes we can fall into that trap too, can't we? We can begin to hear lies. We can tell ourselves, you know, I deserve what? Better than this. I deserve better than this. Or nobody has it as bad as me. Have you ever thought that? You know, nobody else has it as bad as me. Listen, I know our congregation. We all have things that are bad in our situations that require faith in our lives, that require faith. The thing I'm, I'm getting at is instead of looking to and exalting God in our, in our trials or in their trials, they are looking to their circumstances, exalting their trials and grumbling. And we need, we need to be aware as a people that grumbling is contagious. It can spread throughout our community like cancer and destroy the work of God. We just need to be aware of that. So number one, complaining is a fruit of unbelief. Secondly, I just want us to see real quickly how Moses intercedes for those who are guilty of sin. This is a a clear uh, picture that goes throughout the book of of Numbers. He's constantly 
praying for his, uh, the people. Even when they want to stone him, he prays for them that God would forgive them. And this is just a foreshadowing of how uh, Jesus will intercede for his people, how Jesus intercedes for us. Now, in chapters, chapter 11, I mean, verse 4 of chapter 11, we see the people become forgetful. Verse 4 says this, Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. All right, and here comes verse 5. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing but our lives, right? The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now, if you've ever wondered where I get the phrase, we are a forgetful people, this is where I get it from. This passage right here is where I get it from. These people have forgotten something. They have forgotten how bad their life was under Pharaoh. Not only that, but they are also masters of rewriting history of what happened. And they are longing for something in the past that did not exist. They've convinced themselves that life was better in the past. And they are despising the current blessings that God has for them today. Manna, if you remember what manna was, it was God's bread from heaven that would come down every night for the people to eat. No other nation has ever experienced it. No other nation ever will. This was God's way of saying, you are my people, you're special, you're set apart, and I'm going to give you something that nobody else is going to have. They despised that. He had given them his abiding presence also. No other nation was given these privileges. And this, is a pas this passage is a warning to us to be careful. Be careful about looking back and saying, I wish we could go back to the 80s. <laughs> I really do, though. I mean, the music was so much better back then. Amen? Okay. But, you know, for some reason... Current trials make us forget about trials that we had back then. They were back then, too. We just, we just seem to just remember the blessings. And sometimes God's past blessings can be today's curses. They can be today's curses, and they will keep us from moving forward into the future. Uh, God is with us in the, pre in the present, and he is enough. Now, in chapter 12, Moses encounters family conflict. Man, don't you guys just love family conflict? There is, think about your family right now. There is nothing like family conflict, is there? And he's, he experiences it with his brother, his sister, and an in-law, his wife. It says, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses, verse 1, because of the Cushite woman he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken also through us? There's this, this conflict that has arisen. And we're not, we're not given a lot of detail here about this Cushite woman. We know that it's not Zipporah who was his uh, first wife. She, she died. But Moses remarried, and Miriam and Aaron did not approve of this decision. They don't like the decision he made. So suddenly they begin to question his authority. 
That happens, doesn't it, leaders? Have you ever been in leadership? You make a decision that those who are following you don't like, and suddenly, hmm, I wonder if you're really qualified to be my parent, to tell me what to do. Uh, whatever situation, whatever position you are, if you're a boss in your work and you, you go an undesired uh, way, this can bring upon you the question, huh, I wonder if you really uh, should be an authority. And this is what Miriam and Aaron are doing to Moses. They're saying, who do you think you are, Moses? God speaks to us too, and it is true that God did speak to them, but it's uh, clearly, this is clearly a product of unbelief because Miriam, Miriam and Aaron are wanting to be in control. They're wanting to take control, even though it's very clear that God placed Moses in control or in leadership back at the burning bush. And you know what? In challenging Moses, they are actually challenging God. And so God disciplines them, well, specifically Miriam, with leprosy, and then what does Moses do? He intercedes for her. She's against him, and yet he is for her. Isn't that a picture of the gospel? And Miriam is healed. And so what I want us to see here is that a controlling and critical spirit is also a sure sign of unbelief. Now, in chapter 13, we come to a pivotal pivotal. Uh, passage. It's when the Israelites have reached the border of the promised land. Now, I'm told that from the Mount Sinai to the border of the promised land is about a 11-day to two-week journey. And so they get there, and God commands Moses to send out spies to survey the land. Let's look at Numbers 13, verse 17. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. God is wanting them to see, is the land the way I described it? Is it as good as I said it would be? And so what Moses does is he chooses 12 men, one from each tribe, representing each tribe of Israel, and they go out and they spy out the land. And while they're there, they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes. It's so heavy, it's so um, big that it takes two men to carry it back to the camp of, of the Israelites. And in verse 25, it says that at, at the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea. 
and along the Jordan. They say it is beautiful, but there's too many obstacles for us there. There's too many obstacles for us. We can't do it, is what they're saying. But in verse 30, it says, But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Caleb has faith, right? Not in himself, but in the promises of God, in in God himself. He said, I'm going to give you that land. And instead of looking at the inhabitants, he looks at God. He says, we can do it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we had gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. When we saw ourselves next to them, we felt like grasshoppers. And then it says, And so we seemed to them... We look like grasshoppers to them. Now, is that true or false? In a few couple weeks, Lord willing, in the book of Joshua, we're going to see that that's false. Because when the spies go into Jericho and they come to Rahab, what does Rahab say? She says, you know what? When we saw y'all, the fear of the Lord fell upon us and our hearts melted away. The people in there are already scared of them. But they don't know that. Numbers 14, verse 1 says, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. And I want you to mark this next phrase. It says, Or would that we had died in this wilderness. It would have been better for us to have died in the wilderness than to try to go into the promised land. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? They're accusing the Lord that he's just brought us here to kill us. Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. You know, the land is, is beautiful and just as God said it is. But it's also, like we already said, it's filled with obstacles. It's filled with trials. It's filled with situations that bring these people to a place that say, we cannot do this in our own strength. That is what the purpose of trials are meant to do to the believer. To bring us to a place that we come to an, to an end of ourselves, and then put our faith in God. I can't do it, but God can do it in and through me. And that's what God is wanting his people to see. But they are filled with fear. They're filled with fear that if we obey God, it's not going to go good for us. If we obey God, our children are going to perish Our wives are going to perish. We're going to perish. So it would be better for us to just abandon ship and go back to Egypt. And, you know, sometimes we can be like that as believers, can't we? When we come to a situation that's difficult. When you have to decide, 
Am I going to obey God in this situation or not? You can become filled with fear. Because if you obey God, you could lose relationships. You might could lose your job, your reputation. And sometimes you will. You might do that. But it's always for the believer to follow God. In the end, you will not regret walking by faith. Well, this was meant to be a, um, a adventure or a, uh, the spies were meant to come back and bring uh, a joyous report. And this did not happen. And in verse 5 it says, Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bread to us, for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Such confidence in faith when we have faith in the Lord, when we see God, our enemies are like bread to us. We know that God will protect us. Verse 10 says, Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. They didn't want to hear the truth. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. Now after this, the Lord says, I've, I've had enough with these people. Uh, they, they won't believe me, so I'm going to wipe out. He tells Moses, I'm going to wipe out all these dissenters, and I'm going to start over with you. And, you know, Moses, I mean, Moses has been uh, in the wilderness for a while with them, and, and now he's going to have to, you know, have 40 years. He doesn't get to go into the promised land, even though he believed. He doesn't get to go in right now because of their unbelief. Later, he's not going to be able to go in because he disobeys God by striking the rock when God told him to speak to it. But there's a lot going on with him. This would be tempting, wouldn't it? Okay, all right, all right. go ahead and wipe them out, and then we can start over. But that's not what happens with, with Moses. Instead, he intercedes on their behalf. He, he reminds the Lord, which the Lord knew this. I think the Lord was more testing Moses to see what was in so Moses could see what was in his heart. But he reminds the, the, the uh, Lord, look, the nations around will think badly of your name because you couldn't bring them into the promised land. And, and so the Lord pardons them, the people of Israel, but he punishes those who are 20 years old and up by forbidding them to enter into the promised land. Only Joshua and Caleb would enter and the, the, their children, who they said were going to perish, he said, I'm going to bring them into the promised land. I will fulfill this promise to bring them into the promised land through them. And you know, as I've studied the book of Numbers, it's become very apparent to me that when we're asking the question, will God fulfill his promises? Will God fulfill his promises to bring the people into the land of promise? The real question is, are the people willing to enter in? By faith. It's not with God. The problem of bringing these promises to pass is not with God, it's with the willingness of the people. 
And, and in their own words, they said, if only we had died in this wilderness. And so God honors this decision. Basically, what he says is, look, you don't want to go in to the promised land. And I'm not going to force you to. This is a thing that runs all through Scripture. This is something that we need to understand. When Jesus came to earth, he says, come to me, I will save you. I will put my spirit upon you, and within you I will give you a new heart. I will bring you into the spiritual promised land. But he says, but I'm not going to force you to. You've got to come to me by faith. You've got to come to me because you want to, because you desire to. God does not force himself upon anyone against their will. And so uh, God honors their request to die in the wilderness, and he ends up replacing an entire generation by allowing them to wander in the desert for 40 years until they all die off and their children become adults. And they enter into, uh, they eventually, not, not in the book of Numbers, but Deuteronomy, in the book of Deuteronomy that we plan to be in next week, they enter in, they will enter in then. But um, the rest of this, uh, this section, they, the uh, Israelites experience some uh, victories. They begin to trust God in some areas, but they also fall back and have moments of rebellion until they, again, they reach the borders of the promised land. That brings us to the plains of Moab, verses uh, chapters 22 through 36. If you're taking notes, you might want to write under that, almost there. They're almost there. They're at the foot, at the border of, of um, the promised land. And, and during this section of Scripture, uh, God blesses his people. He blesses them through this pagan seer by the name of Balaam. I wish we had time to go into this, not only because it's just it's kind of funny, it's the section of the talky, talking donkey, but Balaam, who has been hired to curse the Israelites, can't do that. He, no matter how hard he tries, he only can bless them. And this fulfills the, the promise that God told Abraham. He says, those who bless you, uh, I will bless. Those who, those who curse you, I will curse. Uh, Moses, in this section, commissions Joshua to take his place as leader of Israel. And the book of Numbers ends with the second generation of Israelites outside the promised land, poised to enter the land that their fathers rejected. And so, as I mentioned in the beginning, you know, Numbers is a, a book that we need to study because it was written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And it's, it's there again to give us instruction, to help us to see the pattern of the walk of faith. We need to see that pattern. It's over and over. I'm just going to run through it real quick. As we're closing here, uh, God calls us to himself. That's the first thing. He Then he prepares us. God leads us into the wilderness towards the promised land. And in that time in the wilderness, we encounter trials along the way. Life gets difficult. We get tired. We get fatigued. We get weary. We feel lonely. And that's when we come into the fork in the road and we have to make the decision. Am I going to take the path of faith or am I going to take the path of unbelief? I've just made a list of, on this slide here, I've just made a list of um, fruits of both of faith and unbelief. Faith these are things that, uh, that Caleb expressed, eager obedience. He remembered God. He had a confident spirit, and he had a fear, but it was the fear of disobedience to God. 
That is, that is a product of faith. Faith causes us to fear the Lord in a good way. The path of unbelief, some of the fruit is complaining, it's forgetfulness, having a controlling spirit, and the fear of obedience. If I obey, I'm afraid to obey because it's not going to go well for me. And, you know, I, I don't have a question that everybody in this room wants to be like Joshua and Caleb. But what about if this morning, as I've been talking, you are experiencing a fresh kind of like conviction, and instead of really identifying with Joshua and Caleb, you're more identifying with the ten spies. Some of these fruits that I read of unbelief, you're like, man, that's what I've been walking in lately, and the Holy Spirit is, is convicting you. What if you, this morning you, you, uh, you've come to your trials and, and you're, you're aware that you've been grumbling in your trials? Uh, maybe you've been gossiping. Maybe you see that you're, you're just trying to control everything, everyone and everything around you. Maybe you, you've lost it this week. You know, that trial just took you to that place and you lost it like Moses did when he struck the rock. What do you do then? What do you do when you find out, you know, I'm like the 10 spies? Well, in chapter 21, there is a situation where, once again, the people are impatient. They are impatient, and they begin to grumble, and so God sends fiery serpents in among the people, and they bite the people, and some of the people begin to die. They, they say, we have sinned. They confess their sin. Moses intercedes for them, and the Lord says this in, in uh, chapter 21, verse 8, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten... Look, when he sees it, not when he touches it, not when he gets there, not when he makes a sacrifice to it, when he sees it, when he looks to it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now in the book of John in the New Testament, chapter 3, Jesus says, you know what? That bronze serpent is me, is me. That's a picture of me. And in verse 14 of chapter 3 of, of the book of John, Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. If you realize this morning that you have been walking on the path of unbelief. If you've come to a place this morning where you realize, man, I'm getting bit by fiery serpents. I'm dying. You, if you realized your sin, what must you do? Look. Look. Look up to Jesus. I'm going to close with a, uh, a story about Charles Spurgeon. He was a Baptist minister who According to him, he came to Jesus during a, a snowstorm when he stumbled into a Methodist chapel. Um, the, for some reason, well, because of the snowstorm, the regular um, pastor could not be there. So there was a lay person that wasn't really skilled at preaching, preaching. And he was preaching from Isaiah 45, and he said this verse. He said, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. And then he, he looked at, 
Charles Spurgeon in the eye and said, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. Spurgeon says, I saw it once, the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought, like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it is with me. I had been waiting to do 50 other things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you shall be saved. You know, that's the message of the book of Numbers. Look. That's the message of the entire scriptures. Look to Jesus in faith. Jesus is, just, is saying, just look to me in faith and I will save you, not by what you do, but, but, but by what he has done for us. Amen? Amen. Pastor Terry is going to come and lead us in the Lord's Supper.